I was sitting in my child's second grade classroom during open house, listening to her teacher go over the various websites and apps and other tools they'd be using in class and that we parents and guardians could use to support and keep up with our kids' work at home. It was around this time that the teacher mentioned that she encourages the students to log out of various websites and apps each day in class to, quote, protect their information. It struck a chord, to say the least. I mean, sure, my kid has a tablet and I let her play with my phone. She knows the pins for each, but we never really discussed usernames, passwords, or online privacy or safety. I knew then that I needed to rethink how my child, a digital native, engages with the digital world. She just turned seven and I'm already behind. But so is education around digital literacy in general. I'm Anita Bell, and this is The Mind Online. This podcast comes to you from Teaching Tolerance, a project of the Southern Poverty Law Center. According to a 2018 Pew Research Center survey, about 95% of teens say they have a smartphone or have access to one. And about 45% say they're online, quote, almost constantly. Snapchat, Instagram, and YouTube are central to young people's daily lives. But when it comes to education around how those technologies work and how to use them, we're still trying to figure it out. It's more than fake news, a lot more. We live in a world of algorithms and mechanisms that track every move we make online. How are we preparing our young people to navigate this world? Not only in terms of how they're using social media or other digital tools, but also how they can take control of what they put out into the world and how to respond when they encounter hate online. How are we empowering them to use the internet and other digital tools to make change? We're gonna dig into those questions here. In each episode of The Mind Online, we'll explore an aspect of the digital literacy world, what educators and students alike need to know, and how educators can guide students to be safe, informed digital citizens. In this episode, I speak with Matthew Johnson and Shana White, both experts with varying connections to the world of digital literacy and deep insights into what educators need to think about when it comes to effective teaching about life online. Let's get into it. First up, my conversation with Matthew Johnson of Canada's Media Smarts. Among other things, we chat about how students can identify hate masquerading as legitimate ideals online. So, Matthew, thank you so much for talking with me today. I think our audience, um, our community of educators will really appreciate hearing what you have to say. So, first of all, can you introduce yourself and tell us about what you do? Sure. My name is Matthew Johnson, and I'm the Director of Education for Media Smarts, which is Canada's Centre uh, for Digital and Media Literacy. And uh, for more than 20 years now, we've been uh, doing research in media literacy and developing media literacy resources for parents, teachers, young people, and the general public in Canada. So I think many of us, including me, grew up with this concept of media literacy. And so when I was in school, it was how to critically evaluate sources and check whether a URL ended with an edu or an org or, you know, things like that. So students today face a different landscape than previous generations like mine. What can you tell us about what in your mind makes digital media different from traditional media? Well, what's really changed is um, the low barrier to publication and distribution of information. Um, So it used to be that, you know, it took a certain amount of money uh, to be able to produce any kind of media, even print media, uh, and it took even more to distribute it. Um, and really, that was was the biggest expense. It was relatively easy to, for instance, make a zine back in the 1980s uh, when I was young. Um, but obviously, distribution was uh, fairly limited, um, probably to you know people you knew or people at local clubs. Um, and the internet really has changed both of those. Uh, so it's very easy now for almost anybody to create a website. Um, that looks as professional as any legitimate website. And in many cases, more professional, because in a lot of times, 
um, legitimate organizations, you know, scientific organizations, medical organizations, uh, government, NGOs, they may not uh, direct their, uh, you know, their money towards making a, a nice-looking website. And then someone else who has the intention of misrepresenting themselves, well, they're going to put more money into that. So often the the fake websites look better than the real ones. And of course, distribution on the internet is uh, almost exactly, almost entirely frictionless. Um, It's really up to users to spread it around. And so without those barriers, um, it means really that anyone can spread their message. it means that the things that we describe now as being most viral, um, things that really provoke your emotions, things that uh, provoke sort of uh, feelings of, uh, of tribalism in a way, things that really sort of go to the heart of your identity or that scare you or that set you, um, things you really want to be true, these are the things that spread most easily. Um, often much more easily than uh, the than truth, than uh, corrections sometimes to these stories. And so we really are in a situation where um, it's not enough to be able just to judge um, a particular source uh, because they have gotten so good in many cases at uh, making their websites look um, respectable and legitimate. Um, And it really is a matter of being able to identify what's behind a source um, and recognize the chain that brought a particular piece of content to you and uh, follow that to its original source rather than trying to necessarily, you know, fact check every step of the way. So one thing I really heard you emphasizing there was this idea that um, often the sources of problematic content look really slick and professional. And uh, that's part of the reason people can so easily be fooled by them. So what are the implications of that you're seeing with young people today? What's happening with students today as a result of not being to tell the difference you know, we've heard a lot about this in the news. Fake news is a term that's definitely related to this. But um, just in your line of work, what are you, how are you seeing this play out with young people? Well, one of the things that we already know from data that we've gathered is that young people are a lot less likely to, uh, to make an effort to fact check information that comes to them by way of social media. Um, we actually found a really encouraging number of students that we surveyed were fact-checking things that they were doing for school, um, which uh, you know shows that they are learning uh, in schools how to do fact-checking. And when they know that they're going to be called on it, when they know that their teacher has told them they have to prove the validity of any source that they're using, they'll go ahead and do it, and they have some idea how to do it. And we also know that they will take an effort to fact-check things when they're doing research on someone else's behalf. So when they're trying to get uh, some health information for a friend to ask them help to find it, to help find it or um, finding you know, a recommendation of a product for a relative or something like that, they do take the steps there. But they don't take the steps when things come to them through social media. And we know, of course, that that is how so much news comes to them. So what we are learning is that we need to emphasize more than just how you evaluate a specific source, um, how to get the context uh, that you need to be able to evaluate a source, Um, that... Uh, the the weakness, of course, of young people has always been that they don't really know that much about the world. Often they don't uh, they don't know how to recognize what are some of the signs that someone holds a particular political position or you know is uh, a member of a particular group. You know some some of the things that we sometimes call uh, dog whistles or even, you know, particular phrases that are associated with different political theories, different political identities, different subgroups. Um, If you're not able to recognize those, then your antennae don't sort of tingle when you encounter 
something that's problematic. And that's why, well, it's one of the reasons why we really advocate for a holistic media and digital literacy that has uh, not just authentication skills, but also really important aspects about, you know, the specific elements of hate material online. So that even if you don't necessarily recognize where something is coming from, once you recognize the elements of the ideology of hate that's being promoted, even if it doesn't necessarily seem like hate uh, explicitly, because a lot of times, you know, hate groups will provide the sort of watered down stuff to have a wider appeal, or if you recognize some of the images, some of the language that they use, then you know already to be on your guard. I'm really glad that you mentioned hate specifically and the various ways that can present itself in ways that aren't immediately apparent. Um, and, And it sounds like what you're saying with this holistic approach is in some ways uh, an approach of empowerment. So I would love for you to talk more about, you know, what are some examples of how this holistic approach could play out in a classroom? So if, if a teacher is interested in say, getting their students to think more about the news they're encountering on social media and the need to take that seriously, uh, you know, in terms of validity and what they're encountering, what are some specific things they can be doing in the classroom to take a more holistic approach to digital literacy? Well, we actually have um, a suite of lessons actually starting from kindergarten and going to uh, the end of high school uh, that cover a really wide range of aspects of digital literacy. Um, everything from authentication, what we call finding and verifying, to um, consumer uh, awareness, so understanding your rights as a consumer and understanding how the profit motive uh, dictates uh, so much of the architecture of the internet. And uh, community engagement would be another example, uh, where you learn about your rights and uh, your ability to uh, make a difference. Uh, and exercise your rights online. Those are just three aspects. But among these lessons are quite a few that are uh, devoted specifically to authentication and a number that are devoted uh, to online hate as well and a few that kind of overlap over the two of them. So certainly we have lessons. We have uh, one of our most popular lessons is a high school lesson called Authentication Beyond the Classroom. And it uh, uses viral photos and videos uh, to help you realize um, that you can't really necessarily evaluate something just by looking at it. And the point being that, uh, you know, you're shown a number of viral photos, a number of viral videos, you might guess correctly or wrongly on which ones were true or false, but the point is that you can't really tell just by looking at them. Uh, that there are, you know, things in this world that are so strange they seem hard to believe but are true. And then, of course, there are things that are that look true but are false. And then there's another category which probably is larger than either of those. And those are things that are, you know, true but uh, misleading, where there's a, a nugget of truth in there but the way it's being presented is uh, is misleading in some way. And that really the only way you can tell uh, which of these it is is by uh, doing deeper and broader research. So not necessarily just looking at the thing itself, not you know trying to make yourself a forensics expert and you know looking at where the shadows are cast and things like that, but uh, doing a little bit of research, going to Google, going to Wikipedia, going to sources that you trust, identifying what you know about the author, trying to track it back to its original source, because often you know, the source that we get something from may not be the original source. And you, so you may see a video that was brought to you by a channel that you might not trust, like RT, you know, the Russian propaganda outlet. But if the original video came from Reuters, uh, then you have a pretty fair idea that you can trust it. This, of course, requires that students know the difference between RT and Reuters, um, and that goes back to what I was saying earlier about the importance of teaching context, that we do have to teach kids how to evaluate a source once you get to that ultimate source, and that really it only takes a few moments to find out what those two things are and why you would trust one over the other. Another example um, would be some of our lessons on hate material online. So we have one called Hate 2.0, which really is about recognizing and learning about the ways that hate groups 
uh, disguise their message through things like cloaked websites, uh, how they communicate through social media in many cases, so that when you encounter it, you can recognize it. And we have other lessons as well that teach you what you can do about it. Again, going to, back to that I- idea that you mentioned of empowerment, the idea that it's not just about recognizing when something is true or false, but taking action. Um, sometimes uh, taking sort of direct action to confront or report something when you recognize it as hate speech, but also recognizing the idea that because the internet is a a network, um, we're no longer just consumers of information. We're broadcasters as well. And uh, we have the power to stop misinformation in its tracks by not sharing it, and in some cases by participating in debunking it as well. I'm Hassan Kwame Jeffries, host of the Teaching Hard History podcast. Did you know that you can earn a certificate for one hour of professional development just by listening to this episode? It's a special opportunity for educators from Learning for Justice. Go to learningforjustice.org slash podcast PD, PD for professional development. That's podcast PD, all one word. You can also find a link in the show notes. Once you're there, enter the unique code word for this episode, influence, all lowercase. And now back to Manita Bell's conversation with Matthew Johnson. So you, you were just speaking quite a bit about hate, um, which I, I touched on before. In your work, are you seeing that hateful information that's being spread? Is that something we should be increasingly concerned about? Is hate in a really substantial way finding its way, say, into our classrooms or into students' consumption in an alarming way right now? There's definitely evidence that, in particular, the the open expression uh, of hate speech has increased over the last couple of years. Um, And that can have a really important impact because we know that it's the loudest 10% in any community that sets the tone, that sets the values of that community. And so when open hate speech or open use of, you know, racist or anti-Semitic or misogynist language um, goes unchallenged, then even among young people who may not be sort of vulnerable to radicalization, they're less likely to speak out against it. And certainly that's one of the really interesting findings we had in our last round of our Young Canadians in a Wired World research, where we survey roughly 5,000 students across Canada from grades 4 through 11, was we found that while students of all ages generally agreed at about the same rates that uh, hate speech online was wrong, the older students were actually less likely than the younger ones to feel they had a right to speak out against it. Oh, that's interesting. What was that about? Well, that's what we're investigating right now. We're actually in the early stages of another research project. Uh, We're actually going to be doing the sampling, um, I think, sometime in the next couple of weeks, where we're exploring... Uh, that idea uh, quite a lot more carefully, taking a look at what it is that influences the decision by uh, people, young people in particular, about whether or not to speak out against uh, what we're describing as as uh, casual uh, prejudice, um, sort of what you might think of as the, the thin end of the wedge, but we do know that it's important um, where uh, uh, things that are not necessarily directly uh, provoking or not necessarily directly uh, aimed at an identifiable target, but still uh, things, use of stereotypes, use of uh, racist or sexist language that communicate the idea that these things uh, are acceptable community values. And so we're hoping to and come out from... Maybe microaggressions as well? Would yeah, exactly. That that's sort of thing. Yeah, Although, yeah. again, yeah. we're and, uh, So we're, we're hoping to come out uh, from that with some really... some clearer ideas about how we can empower young people to speak out. Because certainly we have resources already that are about, uh, you know, empowering young people more broadly to shape community values online um, when dealing with things like cyberbullying, for instance. Um, 
because that is an essential part of digital citizenship. It's not just following the rules, and it's not always following the rules. It is about recognizing that you have rights as a citizen online and offline as well, of course, and that you have the power to influence the values of your online community. And so we do have some resources around that already, and we do have resources around you know, confronting more obvious examples and more sort of stark examples of hate speech online. But we're really hoping to learn from this research um, what are some of the barriers to speaking out against uh, casual prejudice? What are some of the things that can empower young people to um, make their voices heard when they encounter it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate I, I think what you're describing is something we have found in our work as well, which is like this increasing mainstreaming of hateful ideas, right? And, and how to spot that, right? And that this, that the envelope of what is acceptable is being pushed. Yeah, and getting young people to recognize that. You also spoke to uh, the fact that you have kindergarten lessons. And so I think that also touches on this idea that, you know, some people think, uh, you know, maybe this is something we don't have to worry about until middle school or maybe late elementary. But you're clearly saying we need to be talking about this in school with much younger students, with our youngest students. Absolutely. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, Um, With our material for the youngest kids, um, of course, we know that young kids need media and digital literacy education because we know they're consuming media and uh, we know they're using digital devices. We know uh, that they're uh, using digital devices younger and younger every year. Uh, And, you know, you don't have to walk very far. You don't have to go to too many restaurants or sit on too many buses before you'll see a toddler with uh, an iPad or an old iPhone that uh, has been passed down to them. And so we know that there is a need for this. Um, With the youngest kids, of course, it is a challenge keeping it really concrete, Um, keeping it at a level that's uh, appropriate for them in in sort of terms of their cognitive development, their emotional development. So what we do early on is really try to make a small number of ideas very clear. Um, And so one of the things that we teach in those early lessons is the idea that it's easy to find things that you weren't looking for online. Uh, And we know from a number of uh, sources, including our own research, that uh, young people are more likely to encounter hate material online accidentally uh, rather than looking for it. Um, So it's important to teach them from very early on that this can happen, that you can find things you aren't looking for. And of course, part of that is the idea that um, going online is not like necessarily going to a bookstore that uh, really anybody could have published something on there. And so you have to be uh, skeptical uh, in a way that's appropriate at that age. We also, of course, talk about um, ethics and empathy. A lot of our lessons carrying through the whole framework are about promoting empathy in an online context um, and helping kids avoid what we call the empathy traps of online communication. And that is the aspects of online communication, um, things like the fact that we don't hear tone of voice or see body language or facial expression that may prevent us from feeling empathy in situations where we normally would. So at the kindergarten level, we're really looking at helping kids realize that when they're interacting with people online, Uh, they're interacting with real people that we have to treat in the same way that we would treat someone who is right there next to us. And also the idea that there are rules to online life um, that make sense for everybody to follow in the same way that there are rules in the schoolyard. Um, That, uh, you know, if if everyone's playing the same game, everyone's going to have a lot more fun. Uh, And if someone's playing the game but doesn't want to follow the rules, then it's going to be less fun for everybody. And as they go on... Obviously, we build on that. We are able to be more sophisticated. We're able to be a little bit more abstract and deal, bring in more real-world context. But certainly, when we first start talking about things like hate speech, we do it in um, a way that's going to be more accessible. And so we use it that age uh, when we're talking sort of the grade four to eight level. Uh, we use a lot of... Um, analogies and allegories. So a lot of talk, for instance, about uh, aliens or uh, wolves and pigs, so that they can understand the ideas, the idea that there are these 
con- this kind of content out there and I recognize aspects of the ideology of hate without necessarily having to be exposed to actual uh, examples that uh, you know might be, might be painful for them at that age. And then when we move into middle school and high school, we start using some genuine examples because, again, it is really important that kids understand the context, that they learn that this isn't happening in a vacuum, it's happening in the context of uh, you know the reality of racism, sexism, and so on. And so without genuine examples, it's... Uh, very hard for them to understand um, that context and understand why it is a serious issue. Mm. And how have you found uh, the younger ones in particular responding to that material when you're getting into some of the the hateful ideas, even with, you know, the the wolves and the pigs? um, How are they engaging with it? Yeah, you know, I think that young people... Uh, really do uh, have a uh, an instinctive dislike, for instance, of the idea of stereotyping. Um, I think because perhaps they uh, they often experience it themselves um, as young people, um, and so when we talk about stereotyping, whether when we're, whether we're talking about it from a media point of view, when we're looking at representation in media, whether we talk about uh, you know prejudice towards a group and uh, you know, viewing that group as a whole rather than as individuals, I, I think that in many cases that is reaching a feeling that young people already have. And, and again, that really is what our research has uh, found, is that the younger kids have an instinctive feeling that they should speak out. Um, and our job really is helping them to keep feeling that way as they get older, as peer pressure becomes more powerful, as the pressure to not make waves online becomes more powerful, and of course as they start moving into um, the adult world where they may feel less that they have a right to speak out, where they may not feel like full citizens as opposed to the younger kids who are you know, participating mostly in platforms that are made for them. Mm. Absolutely. I have a second grader, so <laughs> I hear, you know, lots <laughs> Me of Me too. Just started two <laughs> oh, days really? ago. Oh, really? Okay. So we, we have kids week the same ago, age. Sorry, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. you know, I will, I will hear stories about, you know, so-and-so said this, and I told them, stop that. That's not nice. Or, you know, you, you hear kids, yeah. young kids, especially talking about what's fair and what's not fair. Um, and when someone is kind and not kind. And so, yeah, what you're saying makes perfect sense to me. This is, you know, the time to be transferring those conversations to what's happening digitally, for sure. Yeah, yeah and again, that again is why it's so important to have this, this coherent framework approach through all of the grades, um, because you can wind up, uh, when you have a patchwork approach, you can wind up in a situation where they feel very empowered in grade four or grade eight, but by the time they're in grade 11, um, if you haven't given them, in a way, a booster shot, uh, if you haven't given them lessons or resources that fit the context they're in, uh, and our research does show there's a huge difference in how kids use digital devices between grades um, 8 and 10, um, then all of those lessons that you taught them earlier, uh, they won't really feel that they're relevant anymore. They won't know how to apply them. So it really is important that we cover the same material repeatedly over their grades, uh, over their school careers, but uh, taking into account, of course, how they're developing in their cognitive and emotional and moral development, but also the different ways in which they're uh, using different platforms. And of course, that's why it's, it's so valuable to be able to do uh, repeated research so that we do have a clear idea of how they're using their digital devices and what they're doing with them. You know, I think you're really speaking to something that I wanted to ask you about, so I'll get into it now, which is this idea of what educators are missing when it comes to digital literacy and and education around digital media. So I think we've talked a lot about the hate aspect that 
um, you know, people haven't been thinking about as much, but that is definitely coming to bear, not only in the United States, but in Canada, as you were saying, and in other parts of the world, we, we see these ideas growing, um, I would say, at least in vocal nature, right, that it's more out in the open, as you were saying earlier. So I, I would say then, in terms of what's missing, the, the hate angle has probably been missing. I think you're also talking about this comprehensive approach um, for all grades, K through 12, that we haven't been thinking about uh, digital and media literacy in that way with this um, you know, holistic view from K to 12. Would you say that there's anything else missing when it comes to education around digital literacy that people need to be thinking about? Well, I don't, I'm not sure it's so much missing as that what we really need to do at this point is um, fully fuse media literacy and digital literacy um, because in many ways we can no longer treat them as separate things because there are so many concepts from one field that have become essential to understanding the other field. Um, so as an example, we've already talked about how a lot of the authentication techniques that we've taught kids over the years that come from media literacy uh, don't take into consideration the, how easy it is to create and spread content. Um, and they don't take into consideration the network nature of modern uh, communications. And so you can wind up uh, encouraging kids to, you know, really spend a lot of time evaluating where they saw something when, in fact, where they saw it may not be relevant. They, it may be the original source that they really need to fact check. And a good example there as well is how our views of uh, Wikipedia have changed over the years. Um, because I think many of us, uh, coming from the media literacy field, obviously we were very skeptical of Wikipedia at first. Um, and rightly so, uh, because early on it was not hugely reliable. Um, and even today, uh, many of the articles on Wikipedia are not reliable. But what we know from digital literacy is that what is so useful about Wikipedia and what is almost unique about Wikipedia is its transparency, which is to say that you actually have a way of judging how accurate a Wikipedia article is. You can tell who's got an axe to grind. You can tell if there's a dispute happening because you can actually look directly at the edits and uh, you can look at what people are saying. And so if someone is putting something in for partisan purposes or just as a prank, you can see that and you can see other people responding to it in many cases. Um, and so really, actually, we were, I think, one of the first organizations in the media literacy field that, uh, you know, came out with tools for using Wikipedia uh, as a reference source in the classroom so that you can distinguish between an accurate or a reliable or an unreliable um, lesson. Um, and then looking at the other direction, at ways that we need to bring media literacy into digital literacy, um, a lot of those basic concepts of media literacy, the key concepts, things like the idea that most media have... Um, Commercial implications, that is to say that uh, media are created uh, to make money in most cases. We know this is hugely relevant to digital literacy because uh, many of the platforms, especially that young people use, the young people themselves don't understand how these platforms make money. So we know from our own research with uh, teenagers about platforms like Instagram and Snapchat they almost never understand how it is that these platforms are making money from them. And what that means is that it makes it very difficult, of course, to understand what your rights are relative to this platform. And uh, when we look at platforms um, like video sites, search engines, social networks, when we see them uh, unintentionally facilitating the spread of hateful content... Um, you really do have to understand the economic motivations um, behind that, why it is, from a commercial point of view, that spreading hate can seem like um, a good business decision. And, of course, that connects to the consumer 
that connects to the consumer awareness as well, that we have to also make kids realize and everyone realize that when these platforms have taken action against hate, um, it's almost always been as a result of consumer pressure, either direct consumer pressure or consumer pressure on their advertisers who then place pressure on them. Um, and we've seen that in a number of cases. But again, if you don't understand how the platform makes money, if you don't understand that Facebook or YouTube or Google make money from advertising to you, then you don't know that you have this powerful lever on them. You have a powerful way of getting them to change by going to those advertisers and saying, I want you to know that your ads are appearing next to hate content on this platform. Mm -hmm. What a great timely example, especially with the uh, U.S. congressional hearings with uh, Facebook and Twitter and, you know, what's allowed on those platforms. For sure. We need to be thinking about mm -hmm. that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, so you were just mentioning um, some of the tools that folks can use. Obviously, Media Smarts is one of them. You've got um, a number of resources there. Um, are there any other resources you would recommend to folks who, you know, who want to get this right and want to make sure they're doing a good job of, uh, you know, fusing media literacy and digital literacy and, you know, thinking of them as one and the same and uh, giving their students what they really need to be good digital citizens? Well, one of the people that I'm following closely, uh, who I think is really um, at the forefront of sort of fusing these different ideas, is uh, is Mike Caulfield from the Digital Polarization Initiative, um, and he has a, a blog as well, which is uh, Four uh, Four Moves in a Habit, which is his sort of uh, heuristic for how to authenticate, um, and he's really. Um, I think doing some of the most important thinking and also synthesizing um, from a lot of other places the most important thinking that's going on right now about um, how to deal with this and how to most effectively spend our energy. Because we do have to recognize that, um, that uh, most people, they don't have a, a lot of time and they don't have a lot of energy uh, for things like fact-checking. And you know, one of the ways that we can deal with that is to make fact-checking part of feel like part of our civic duty to make uh, to valorize fact-checking and also sort of penalize spreading bad information. But from an educational point of view, it's also trying to find the most efficient ways of getting people to do these things. Um, and of course, one of the ways that that connects specifically to hate is that we have to teach people that you have to be extra skeptical with the things that most neatly fit your view of the way things are or the things that you really want to believe. So if you see something and you think it's really juicy and you want to share it, that's exactly the time when you need to take a few minutes, you know, sometimes even 30 seconds is enough to, uh, you know, Google that thing and add the word hoax or do a site search on Snopes, Snopes yep. <laughs> and find out. Uh, whether it is legit. And, you know, I can tell you there's probably been a half dozen times in the last week when I've seen something on Twitter and I thought, oh, that's great. But I've stopped myself. And uh, about half of those times it has turned out to be um, something that wasn't accurate. Mm -hmm. Excellent example. Um, any further tools or resources? Yeah, I'm, I mean, there's a whole field, obviously. Uh, I mean, media literacy, everyone... Uh, of course, is probably aware of, of NAMLI, um, uh, the North American, no, National Association of Media Literacy Educators. I always get that mixed up. Um, and they have, you know, links to uh, media literacy work that's being done uh, across the United States. And of course, uh, Canada and the United States this year are uh, celebrating at the beginning of November um, Media Literacy Week, and uh, our theme, yeah, our theme... And our theme this year is about uh, recognizing, at least in Canada, it's about recognizing and authenticating um, good information online. Uh, so, in fact, at the Media Literacy Week website, and I know for here in Canada it's medialiteracyweek.ca, there are going to be links to um, events and resources uh, from a lot of different sources, and certainly we do share links uh, from the other Media Literacy Weeks around the world, including the United States, um, and uh, for teachers, you know, that can be a really terrific way to get the conversation going because it helps kids feel that they're part of a bigger movement, that this is mm -hmm. things that are happening. 
um, around the country and around the world that they're a part of. I think that is a fantastic way to wrap up. Um, Matthew Johnson of Media Smarts, thank you so much. Um, I think folks will find this a very useful conversation. Thank you. That was Matthew Johnson, Director of Education for Media Smarts. Did you know that Teaching Tolerance has other podcasts? We've got Teaching Hard History, which builds on our framework, Teaching Hard History, American Slavery. Listen as our host, history professor Hassan Kwame Jeffries, brings us the lessons we should have learned in school through the voices of leading scholars and educators. It's good advice for teachers and good information for everybody. We've also got Queer America, hosted by professors Lila Roop and John D'Amelio. Joined by scholars and educators, they take us on a journey that spans from Harlem to the frontier West, revealing stories of LGBTQ life that belong in our consciousness and in our classrooms. Find both podcasts at tolerance.org podcasts and use them to help you build a more robust and inclusive curriculum. Next, I talk with Shana White, a fellow with the Constellation Center for Equity and Computing at Georgia Tech. She makes one thing very clear in our conversation. Nurturing good digital citizenship in our students, in part, correlates directly with the culture an educator establishes in the classroom and that educator's modeling of citizenship, IRL, in real life. Thank you so, so much for agreeing to do this. I'm so excited to uh, talk with you about this particular subject, uh, given all your wonderful expertise. Awesome, I'm glad that you asked me. So can you just start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what you do? All right, um, my name is Shana White, and I recently accepted a position with the Constellation Center for Equity and Computing. It's through Georgia Tech, and basically we're trying to level the playing field as far as computer science instruction in K through 12 classes. So basically there are three fellows. We go into local high schools and teach AP computer science principles to students um, with the hopes to get them excited about computer science and also get them to pass the AP course and also pursue hopefully computer science post-secondary as well as possibly for a career. Okay, great. So this podcast is about digital literacy specifically. So what does that term mean to you as an educator specifically with what you're doing now regarding computer science? Um, The big thing for digital literacy is understanding media, being able to decipher and pull information, but to also understand how to create that information um, and how to create platforms and other tools uh, to be able to break down that information so that it's consumable for little kids all the way up to kids that are seniors in high school. So basically it's just being able to decipher and pull apart information that's in the media, social media, just like television, the internet, and being able to decipher it, being able to encrypt and decode it, and also be able to create it yourself. Okay, so I like that you, you touched on various types of media that folks are engaging with today. Can you talk about some of the major misconceptions regarding teaching about media and digital literacy? And how do you think teachers can overcome those misconceptions in their own practice? One big thing is with digital literacy, it's understanding how kind of like uh, common sense media calls it the nuts and bolts of creation, but also understanding. And a lot of times teachers come in with the misconception because the generation that's coming up right now is very digitally driven, that they understand how to possibly keyboard um, to locate uh, reputable information because they have access to a device 24-7. And that's not necessarily true. Uh, So teachers need to better understand that they're actually needed to teach these types of skills where kids can actually decipher uh, fake news as our current president always screams from the top of his lungs, um, but also be able to create, to not infringe on copyright laws when you look at somebody else's work, to not rip that work off. Um, but to also understand that there is so much stuff out there and to just be able to sift through it with a critical eye and a critical lens is essential. And that's something that teachers should be really excited about being able to do. I like what you were touching on there about this idea that because young people have so much access to information that they you know, readily know how to decipher 
the validity of what they're finding. I know sometimes my son will ask me, he's in college now, but he'll ask me what something means or what something is. And I'll say, ask Siri, why are you asking me? You have an iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, that very idea that just setting them loose on what's out there does not mean that they are ready to parse that information. So that's a really good point. You're also speaking a lot about young people as creators today. And so I just want to touch on that, especially today. Like, what do we need to be thinking about in terms of young people as creators that's different from what we're used to in, say, more traditional or older media? I think one of the big conceptions is a lot of times teachers will say, oh, we need to give students a voice. And the big thing is actually, no, we don't need to give them something they have. We need to kind of get out of their way and provide opportunities for them to share that voice. So giving them the means to be able to do that. uh, And it doesn't necessarily have to be technology, but technology is a great medium to reach broader audiences. So I think giving kids the sense of agency where you're like, hey, Here's some platforms that can really help you elevate your voice, or you maybe have a knack for this or that. Um, And these are some things and some tools technology-wise that can help you elevate that and to fine tune those skills. Uh, But to also at the same time, understand that they are still kids. And with that agency kind of comes a bit of responsibility and teaching them how to utilize these tools in a responsible fashion. So they are not necessarily perpetuating um, myths and misinformation and that they can possibly lead their generation to kind of this new frontier of having a robust set of information that they have to choose from, but being able to be critical as far as assessing that information at the same time. I think that's a great segue into the next thing I wanted to ask you um, as you're talking about this, you know, this kind of new frontier of information and, you know, there's so much out there and, and make sure that we're helping young people tap into their power to use it responsibly So I just want to ask you, you know, in the work that you've been doing, what have you noticed as the dangers that young people face in this online universe that we live in? And and how can educators help them navigate those dangers? The one big thing I would definitely emphasize is that you can't trust anybody on the internet. That sounds really sad to say, but it's to me the similar in person. Like I tell my children, you can't just trust people on the street. The internet is just a really, really large highway. So you can't necessarily trust people have the best intentions on the internet. And if you go in with that mindset, you're going to be a little bit more protective to always. And I always tell my, uh, especially when I coach my student athletes to be mindful of what you post, because it can be found Um, no matter if you delete remove, whatever method that you want to use to get rid of something, it still always can be found. Um, So to be mindful of that whenever you're posting stuff, especially on social media, people believe social media is a platform to really show their individualism and really show their autonomy. But a lot of times they have to understand that there's still some mindfulness involved with that. So I would say those are the two biggest things with internet usage is to not necessarily trust anybody on the internet and to also just be mindful of what you post because eventually these things can be found. And so you mentioned social media specifically. In some ways, educators are using social media as a tool. I think some folks are also kind of hesitant to do that. So can you talk a little bit about educators' roles in either discussing social media or using social media with students as a classroom tool and, you know, just the things to think about along those lines. I think social media is an awesome tool to leverage for students, like I said, to kind of build that broad audience um, and access people they might not necessarily be able to access in their local community. So I think the wealth of knowledge that's available through social media is great. But I think a lot of times with social media, uh, we again have to be mindful as educators to not use a comparison lens where we compare somebody's classroom has done all this stuff because the accessibility that I have through social media to see that I don't use that as kind of a way of a shaming tool as far as I might maybe not be doing enough for my students. But I think leveraging social media to reach out to experts in certain fields um, to expose students to things they might not necessarily get to see or hear um, about in their local community, I think it's a great tool in that means. But again, teachers, we have to be also be mindful to use our agency for good and not evil um, and to leverage social media as a positive thing for our students in the classroom to build them up, but to also help, again, to amplify their voice um, or to basically 
cure their curiosity, if they're curious about the whys of certain things, to reach out to people that are experts in certain fields, in, in certain certain areas, uh, so that you can best kind of crave their curiosity um, and satisfy it um, with information that's relevant to them and important to them as well. Mm-hmm. You were speaking a second ago about accessibility. And, you know, I think we definitely are in a climate where teachers are made to feel like, oh, if I'm not using these digital tools or I'm not doing this from a technological standpoint, I'm behind in some way. But we know there are fundamental inequalities in access to information and certain technological tools across our society and definitely in schools. So um, I would love for you to just kind of share some ideas uh, in terms of you know, what should we, how should we be thinking about digital literacy as an equity issue and what that means for educators? Well, I think going back on the previous question about social media, we have to understand equity-wise there are certain schools and certain districts that block a lot of things and applications for students and teachers um, to use. Something like a YouTube, which has a wealth of information, and there is some stuff on YouTube that is definitely not something I would expose students to. But how we block certain things um, as far as access points for students to gain information and knowledge um, is something that I feel like we need to look at. I think with digital literacy, as far as the nuts and bolts, as I said, Common Sense Media kind of coined it as, is teaching kids how to use these digital tools is can schools buy some of these programs, um, these robust things that people are creating within the fields that maybe they're interested in working in, a lot of times they can't. And so what are some substitutions that are still financially feasible that still will give exposure to kids to things that maybe they're interested in as far as maybe creation with Adobe or whatever the case may be? I can't necessarily afford Adobe, but maybe I can afford this other creation tool. And I'm mindful of this tool being just kind of a gate opener for the kid. I think that's the other thing that we have to realize with the equity issue is that a lot of times we don't have enough access to tools that are just even gate openers for kids. Um, And that is a part of the hierarchy as education as it is. Um, And understanding as teachers, we have to find ways to kind of somewhat dismantle those barriers from our classroom um, however we can um, because the big thing ultimately everybody should be in this for is to better kids um, and to provide opportunities for kids. So in some ways, digital literacy is important in that aspect of being able to dismantle some of those barriers that exist in our schools. But sometimes we can't necessarily dismantle them on our own. Um, it kind of takes a collection of educators in our building, administrators in our building, understanding and really knowing that these tools are necessary for our kids to have access to, even just the basic versions of them, so that they can see, hey, this is something that I'd really like to pursue further, but I've at least had my eyes open to it. And I think as educators, we have to see that as a huge bit of power that we have is to open kids' eyes and open doors for kids that necessarily are not open all the time. I really like that you mentioned the perspective of administrators or that this is something that really concerns them too, um, not just individual classroom teachers. And so for administrators in particular, for those who might have some worries about having their teachers bring certain technologies into the classroom or uh, might be otherwise hesitant, what advice would you give them? Well, the first is to become knowledgeable on the tool that the teachers are requesting. Um, There has to be a reason they're requesting it, um, and especially if you're hearing it from more than one teacher. A lot of times administrators, uh, because they have to wear multiple hats as well, they can't necessarily invest the time to actually do the research and find out the information necessary to make an educated decision. It's kind of like... I'm presented with an idea, and my first inclination is always to say no. That's usually how administrators operate. And so a lot of times teachers take their own autonomy and they say, you know, I'm just going to do it um, and ask for forgiveness later. But I think the onus is is on administrators to take that extra initiative step to find out why the teacher needs this tool and sit down and talk to the teacher. Find out how maybe if this tool is not financially feasible for your school or your district, find out if there is a comparable tool that we can use that can still meet the needs that the teacher wants met for its students. So I would say the onus is on the administrator to definitely do their research or their homework on their own, but also just to actually sit down and listen to the teacher. A lot of times teachers don't feel like they're listened to anyways. And when they get no's from administrators, they're not willing to kind of take those risks for kids and to go out on a limb. And I think as an administrator, kind of the responsibility is on administrators to kind of step into those gaps and say, you know what, like you're 
responsible enough and I respect you as a professional enough that you're saying you need this, tell me more and, and tell me why um, so that I can do my legwork to make this possible for you and also for our kids. Yeah, thank you for that. That's excellent advice. So we've been talking some about I guess, you know, what all is out there and available to young people, not only the various tools, but the various kinds of information and various ways to access that information. And I think we are seeing an increasing connection between knowing how information flows today and good civic behavior. So what in your mind is that connection between digital literacy and good like democratic practice and engagement? Well, I think teaching students how to be good citizens doesn't necessarily require internet usage. And I know there's a lot of movements as far as, you know, kindness in the classroom and empathy, but a lot of our spaces are not inclusive. Um, and so you can't be kind and, 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 and empathetic to someone you haven't really included. Um, and so I think part of the big responsibility on teachers is to kind of take a step back and say, what have I done to create a classroom space or what can I do better to create a classroom space that is inclusive of all voices and respectful of all voices at all times? And a lot of times that requires the teacher to decenter themselves, which as a teacher, uh, that is hard to do. We have egos as teachers. A lot of times people don't think that we do um, because we care about kids, but teachers do have egos. And decentering ourselves in that conversation is a huge thing. I think to all also make a more democratic feel to a classroom and even to digital literacy and media literacy is understanding and respecting kids' voices and respecting them and granting them agency um, with their voices. Uh, A lot of times our first response is to lash back when a child maybe expresses an opinion that we don't agree with. And usually those opinions are not necessarily um, related to society or whatever. It's how the classroom is being run. And so a lot of times as teachers, we have to, again, like I said, decenter ourselves and understand if we are making an inclusive classroom, that we are respecting um, students' voices, and we're also honoring their agency in using their voices. Um, And a lot of times, those two things don't always go hand in hand. And I think once we do that a little bit more in our classrooms, we will create better citizens and people leaving our classrooms, and things like empathy and kindness will flow because we have created that inclusivity by leveling respect um, in the classroom and decentering ourselves as the authority figure um, in the classroom and really respecting and understanding student agency as student agency in its various forms and not policing that as much is a big deal. Okay, so I really love what you're saying here. I just want to make sure I'm really translating this properly. So what you're saying is if we're thinking about how good citizenship, say, is transferring from real life to what's happening online, that part of that has to start with not only how educators are modeling that in the classroom, but the very culture that they set in the classroom. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we, a lot of times educators will say, well, we can't, you know, handle what happens at home. That's true. Once the student leaves our classroom, we don't necessarily have any control. Um, But we do have control for a large amount of hours out of a student's day. Um, And how we build that culture within our classrooms and our schools is key because not only are you having the opportunity to develop kids that are going to be great citizens um, and be inclusive of other people once they leave your building or your classroom, um, but they can model that behavior in their community. Um, And you have a lot of times where people say, oh, well, so-and-so's family believes this, or those kids, we use those qualifiers all the time. Um, You'll hear educators use that, um, is understanding that we can still, um, in using those qualifiers, we have basically become the worst version of our own selves. Um, And we have to understand if we're trying to build that culture and create good citizens who will ultimately be good digital citizens, we have to model that culture in our own classroom. And I think that we can combat a lot of the stuff that happens online if we create good citizens in our classroom. And like I said, it goes back to the respect piece. It goes back to the decentering of authority by teachers. It goes back to the excessive policing we do of certain kids' voices um, and certain kids' expressing their voices um, in our classrooms and our schools. And I think once we do that and we realize and take it from that lens, 
you're going to develop kids that sit there and say, wow, you know what? I was in this classroom and I felt respected. I felt my voice was honored. I felt that I was included. I want to make sure that I replicate that feeling for other people. And I will replicate that feeling while I'm online. Um, And I think understanding that our behavior that we have in person, it's literally the same online. A lot of times people say that they take different personas online and on social media on this and social media. There's tremendous insight to who you are online is who you are in real life. Um, And I think as educators, we have a really good chance to mold kids to be good citizens and good people in real life. So they ultimately will literally adopt that same behavior when they're online. You know what you just said is really resonating for me right now, because I don't know if you've heard this news that I I just read this morning, that a teacher in Louisiana um, is in hot water right now for a comment she made on Facebook regarding the Colin Kaepernick situation and that black people, quote, act like animals. And so I think that is just such a rich example of what you were just saying about, you know, if if this is a teacher who is holding these beliefs and putting that online, I'm wondering now, what is her classroom culture? How is she engaging with students and what are the messages she's communicating in person? And then, you know, we see what she has now revealed about her beliefs online. And so just that connection, there's not that veneer of the screen as you, you know, as people like to think. It, it really just shows what's happening in real life and face-to-face interactions. Had you heard that story? I didn't hear that story, but we had a recent story in Georgia with a superintendent of a school district that was caught on tape um, using the N-word. And his district serves uh, a lot of student, black students. And like you said, social media to me is an insight to who people really are. And I can't imagine being a student in that district um, in Georgia or a student in that classroom in Louisiana. And even as a parent, um, because I have two kids myself, I would be terrified to know that my child is in a classroom with somebody who believes that. And I think, like I said, it goes back to social media and just your online persona is really a glimpse of who you are in real life. And you can't have an inclusive classroom with a teacher who has beliefs that literally are the opposite of inclusion. And like I said, it's I didn't hear that Louisiana story, but that it breaks my heart because you don't know, I don't know how long she's been in the classroom. You don't know how many lives and trajectory of lives she's changed because of that belief, because I'm willing to guess that she's over-policed black kids in her classroom. There might've been more discipline-related things um, for black students in her classroom. Um, If she was comfortable enough to express on social media that black people behave like animals, that conditioning in her mind literally would have impacted the trajectory of so many students that she would have seen um, in her career. And that kind of hurts my heart because those kids are scarred for life and their trajectory has been ultimately changed and shaped by this one person. Um, And it goes back to my husband always is a big superhero fan and the big Spider-Man thing is with great power comes great responsibility. And to educators, we have to harness that and understand the power that we have and the fact that we can change the trajectory of children's lives for the best or for the worst, and understand that power that we do have. Thank you. I think that's a great way to wrap up just with the responsibility that educators have uh, when it comes to, you know, they're influencing, like you said, the trajectory of children's lives. And so this is more than teaching about how to use and seek information online. You know, we really are influencing the citizens that young people will become by the kinds of citizens we are largely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Our example, a lot of times you'll hear people say like, kids won't necessarily listen to the words, all the words that come out of your mouth, but they will watch how you behave. And even those words, if they come out on social media, I'm willing to bet kids they kind of saw that writing on the wall a long time ago with the incident from the teacher in Louisiana and the superintendent here in Georgia. So understand students are watching, they're paying attention, and they're going to know when your words and your actions don't match up either. Um, And I think that's what teachers have to understand is we have to be mindful. There's so much stuff on our plate. I totally get that. But to me, this should be the core of our mission while we're in schools is 
being good citizens ourselves um, and creating environments that are inclusive of all kids and all voices and respectful of all kids and all voices, and then modeling that ourselves. And that might take work on some people's parts uh, as far as education into our own biases and misconceptions and implicit biases as well. But ultimately, if we want to change the trajectory of our country and to produce great citizens and also great digital citizens, it starts in our classrooms every single day. Well, I'm not even going to add to that. That is the perfect way to wrap that up. Thank you, Shana, for that. Um, So my final question for you then, you know, considering everything we've talked about, can you tell us about some resources that you would recommend to teachers when it comes to teaching about digital literacy, but also uh, digital citizenship and citizenship in general? I know you already mentioned Common Sense Media. Mm Um, I would say Common Sense Media is a great go-to just for digital citizenship and digital literacy. They have tons of resources. They actually even vet applications that teachers can use in their classrooms. Um, and so to me, that's also a great resource to leverage, especially if you're asking to use some sort of digital tool with your administrator. Um, you can show them how Common Sense Media has ranked it. Other teachers have ranked it. So it gives you a little bit more leverage as far as possibly getting those digital tools to your students. I'm always a big fan of teaching tolerance as far as the inclusive lens um, and creating those classrooms that are inclusive and respectful of all voices um, and all meaning all, not all the ones that we like, but all meaning all. Uh, So I love the resources there. But there's, like I said, you easily can do a general Google search for digital literacy uh, resources, but I would say Common Sense Media is probably the best one um, and the one that I would say is a big go-to. But a lot of times you can learn a lot of things just from talking to other colleagues. Uh, A lot of the stuff that I've learned just in the world of ed tech, um, computer science, and even with digital literacy is talking to other teachers. uh, What works in your classroom? uh, What didn't work? And using and leveraging um, other colleagues and their expertise expertise as well is a great way to make your classroom um, more inclusive and more likely to create great citizens. Thank you. Thank you so much. That is Shana White. And Shana, just one more time, will you tell us what you are doing at Georgia Tech? Um, I'm a Constellations Fellow with the Constellations Center for Equity and Computing. And basically, we are trying to make computing more equitable for students in Atlanta schools. So we are going in to teach AP computer science to these students um, to help uh, them not only pass the AP tests, but to also provide opportunities um, and open doors in computer science and computing for students that might not necessarily have these opportunities available to them. Awesome. Thank you so much, Shade. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You just heard from Shanna White, a fellow with Georgia Tech's Constellation Center for Equity in Computing. Thanks for tuning in to The Mind Online, a podcast of teaching tolerance, which is a project of the Southern Poverty Law Center. I'm your host, Monita Bell, Senior Editor for Teaching Tolerance. This podcast was inspired by Teaching Tolerance's Digital Literacy Framework, which offers seven key areas in which students need support developing digital and civic literacy skills and features lessons for kindergarten through 12th grade classrooms. Each lesson is designed in a way that can be used by educators with little to no technology in their classrooms. The Digital Literacy Framework and all its related resources, including a series of student-friendly videos and a professional development webinar, can be found online at tolerance.org diglit. That's tolerance.org D-I-G-L-I-T. This episode of The Mind Online was produced by Jasmine Lopez with help from Esther Mania Sawyer, J.P. Davidson, and Seth Samuels. Production was supervised by Kate Schuster. Special thanks to my guests, Matthew Johnson and Shanna White, and to Teaching Tolerance senior writer Corey Collins. Like what you heard? Then share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And remember to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen. 